This is the 343 Podcast. I'm your host, John Pronich. Welcome to the show. Randy Waldrum's soccer career started in Texas during a time that soccer hardly existed. He remembers when the recreational league in his small town first started. He remembers who started it, and he remembers watching it grow year after year after year. And the stories that he shares during this interview are very, very impressive. Randy has coached collegiately and professionally over the course of several decades. He won two NCAA national championships as the head coach of the Notre Dame women's program. He's currently the head coach of the women's team at the University of Pittsburgh. This was a very fun conversation with Randy that covers American soccer history from his point of view. He touches on a number of important topics, including the importance of mentors, how difficult it is to be a club soccer coach today, and the fact that the rest of the world is quickly catching up to the U.S. women's national team. We also spent a few minutes discussing the importance of playing young players. That's been a hot topic here in American soccer for the past few years. And so he provides his take and what he's done in the past with his programs. And that was one of my favorite parts of our phone call. You can, uh, you can connect with Randy on Twitter. I've provided a link to his profile in the write-up for this podcast that is available on 343coaching.com. And just a reminder that you can subscribe to this podcast on every major podcast platform. That means Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, whatever, wherever you are listening to this, I'm sure that you can hit subscribe and get these delivered directly to your phone or to your computer or to your tablet, whatever you listen on. And if you want to help the show grow, it is a good idea to subscribe to it, but also to rate it, review it, and share it on social media platforms. This podcast is supported by Bounce Athletics. Finding high quality and reliable training balls and numbered training vests can be challenging, but Bounce Athletics has you covered. They are offering 343 listeners an additional 10% discount on all orders. And I just spoke with Zach Jonker, founder of Bounce Athletics, about a new package deal that they are offering to help coaches get ready and prepared for tryout season. You can order 24 of their premium training balls and 24 custom numbered reversible training vests for $6.99. They also have a package that comes with 48 balls and 48 vests for $11.99. The training vests are great for colleges, high schools, and camps that are looking for ways to identify players and keep training sessions organized and just keep the sessions going and flowing without having to stop and figure out who's going where and who's on what team and and, uh, what position people are playing. The vests and the numbers on the vests and the reversible vests make things a lot more simple. And the balls, well, those balls are on par with brands like Nike, Adidas, and Select, but they will only cost you a fraction of the price. And then you slash another 10% off when you use the discount code for 343. But the balls are legit. I use them every single training session. If you listen to this podcast, you've heard me talk about them before. Recently, the guys that that I'm training, they are literally fighting over the bounce athletic balls because they are the best balls in the bag. So if you would like to start your order process, you can email info at bounceathletics.com and make sure that you mention 343 to receive your additional 10% discount. So that is crucial. Make sure you mention 343 because that is how you're going to get that additional 10% off. This podcast is also supported by our very own premium coaching education program. The 343 Membership Program is a powerful and effective online education program for coaches who take their craft seriously and want to get the most out of themselves and their teams. 
Coaches of all levels have successfully implemented the material with U10 teams all the way up to and including college and professional teams. And when I say coaches of all levels, I mean coaches of all levels, like coaches that are just starting out and coaches that have two decades worth of experience. So coaches of all levels are finding value in this program and they're implementing that with teams of all levels from U10 to professional. Um, I feel like that was really important to clarify. Uh, 343 member Michael Graham said, I'm in my sixth year. It's worth every penny. You train and refine your methods within an already proven structure. End quote. When you sign up, you get 24-7 access to the proven methodology and you're instantly connected to a nationwide network of other ambitious, like-minded coaches. You will also get videos of real training sessions and real games, ebooks, audio lessons, classroom presentations, and forums for networking and sharing ideas with other 343 members. This is the only program that gives you an inside look at how some of the best players in this country were actually developed. So if you're wondering what's going on with some of those best players and how those players are getting to the places that they are on professional rosters and youth national teams and national teams, well, this is a great, great place to get a peek at what went into the making of those players. And you can learn more about the benefits of the 343 Premium Coaching Membership Program by visiting 343coaching.com. Once again, you can find all of that by visiting 343coaching.com. Okay, that's it for the intro. Uh, please go check out our program. Go check out Bounce Athletics. But in the meantime, I hope that you enjoy this episode of the 343 Podcast with Randy Waldrum. Hey, Randy, what's going on, man? Not, not too much. I, I um, just trying to uh, catch up on some some lawn duty here. You know how that goes. <laughs> lawn duty. <laughs> are you talking about soccer field lawn or are you talking about your house? No, I, I wish it was. My own personal lawn, yeah. Yeah, no, we, we um, got back from Colorado and I think it had rained here all week. So the yard was a little bit of a mess. So while the sun's out, I, I snuck home a little bit from work today trying to get a little bit of that done. So I'm curious. How much uh, how much work is there for a college soccer coach in the beginning of May? What's the what's the workload like for for you in May? You know what? It's actually surprisingly it's pretty busy because of um, you know the recruiting is is nonstop. And I know, for example, we were out in Colorado last week. Um, I'm headed to um, uh, PDA. You know, later this month, at the end of the month, we're heading up to Canada the week before that uh, to see some kids up in Canada beforehand. So really, you know, as far as travel and things go, it's still still fairly busy. And and then just tying up loose ends with the, um, you know, our kids left campus about a week ago. So, you know, just trying to tie up loose ends in the last week with meetings and, you know, getting them set for the summer and trying to help them find teams. And, you know, so it's still, it's still pretty, pretty active. Yeah. I'm also, I'm also curious about how much interaction you have with people, I guess, especially incoming, incoming players, like when it comes time to like May, June, July, how much interaction you actually have with those players and with their parents, I'm assuming, because that, that has to be pretty tedious as well. Right. Yeah, there's a lot of loose ends. And then what we're trying to do has been a little bit different. I mean, I always did this when I was at Notre Dame uh, as well. We didn't we didn't kind of require it, but we, we're bringing all of our incoming freshmen. And 
just to kind of preface it, John, what I'm doing is when I got here, the team was just bad. I mean, it just, you know, wasn't was wasn't ACC level. Uh, great kids, good people, but, you know, not soccer players that should be playing at the top conference in the country. So we pretty much over the last year have kind of cleaned house and kind of helped everybody find a home that was more of a fit and, and you know, those kinds of things. And so we're bringing in 20 new players. So to answer your question, um, I'm having a lot to do with them because right now I'm trying to get them. I'm going to bring all of those kids into uh, what we call our summer two, uh, our second summer school session. And that's about a five-week course before we start preseason. And um, the reason we're doing it is kind of twofold. One is we got so many new kids. Um, they can work out with our strength and conditioning coach. Um, so we're kind of guaranteeing ourselves that they'll come in with a, lot, a little bit better preparation physically. Uh, and then they can get a couple of classes banged out. So really right now we're, we're real busy back and forth just trying to get them – making sure everything's enrolled for summer two and getting their housing taken care of. Some of them are going to live in the dorm. Some are going to live off campus. And so, yeah, there's a lot of tedious paperwork stuff to get done over these next, um, you know, five or six weeks. Randy, my, my ears perked up when you, when you said you cleaned house, I I, want to, I want to see if you're comfortable talking about that. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Cause it's, um, it's something that I think, especially in youth soccer, parents and players and coaches aren't accustomed to at all. Like in youth soccer, I have to believe that this is a universal problem, you know, across across the nation is that you kind of just you you get what you get and, and then you kind of just deal with it. You don't really a lot of times coaches don't have the luxury of cleaning house in youth yeah. soccer. So that was probably an eye opening experience for a lot of people. That's probably the first time that a lot of those players had been cut or or talk to like they weren't the star of the show so how uh how do you handle something like that man what's the what's yeah. what's step one well i'll tell you what we did um to give you a little backstory on it I, when i took the job at pittsburgh the one of the things i i, I made clear with the ad is i didn't want to be hamstrung with the old coaches players and he had made some commitments. I came in last year in, in 2018. And so he had six or eight, eighteens that he was going to sign. He had several 19s and a couple of commitments to 21s. So most campuses that I've been around over my almost 30 years in the college game, kind of when they bring a new coach, they want them to honor those commitments. And um, our AD was quite the opposite. And I, and, and I have to give her a lot of credit. Her name's Heather like, and um, she's been fantastic. And one of the things I told her, I said, if, if I'm hamstrung with those commitments um, and the current players, then it's with the recruiting being so early now, I said, you know, it's, it's three years before I can get the kind of players we need. And that's three more years of losing. And the kind of players we need won't come here if we, you know, if I can't show that we're, we're making improvements and she agreed with that and, and, and she let all the parents know ahead of schedule that they were going to let the new coach make the decision. So I think it's important to understand that we got the backing of the administration on this. So actually kind of your question of how did we, what was step one, you know, I, I came in in January. Um, so I, and signing date was, you know, a month away 
And so I didn't really have time to bring in any 18s. Um, so we kind of had what we had. And then what I ended up doing is um, at the end of the spring, you know, when we sat down and had our meetings, uh, there were a few of the players that we just knew were, were miles away. And so we just had some very candid conversations and, you know, let them know that um, I didn't see them fitting in to the way we wanted to play and the kind of players we wanted to bring in. Um, but we tried to do it in a way, too, that was like, you know, just because you don't fit my vision of how we want to play doesn't mean you're a bad player. It means there's a, there's got to be a better fit for you. So we we really tried to, to approach it instead of just going your cut and good luck. You know, we tried to say, you know, you, you, you won't play here moving forward, so we need to help you find a place that's a fit. And so we did that with four or five kids last spring. And then the others, you know, we, we couldn't do it with the whole team because I wouldn't have had a team to play. <laughs> so, um, so when we got through the season, you know, we let them know, you know, pretty much straight away that, um, you know, we'd have some conversations at the end of the season. And, you know, all along we've been talking about the standards and the expectations of the program and, you know, what we were intending to do with the players we were going to be recruiting and how much work they were going to have to put in on their own, you know, to try to improve enough to, to stick around. So we did the same thing in the fall and had the same kind of conversations. And, and honestly, John, that went pretty well for most of the group. We did have a couple that just wouldn't hear what you were trying to tell them. And uh, they wanted to stick it out and felt like they could contribute. And, you know, we said, fine, we'll, continue on in the spring and but at the end of the spring you know we're going to sit down and have this conversation again and, it, and and you may not be back you know you may be cut so we ended up having to cut two uh just kind of outright uh the other six or seven we were able to um you know to find them a place and it's hard because as much as you tell them you know it's not about their ability so much you know you try to get them to understand it is a different level in the ACC and it doesn't make them bad players. It just means that, you know, and I always allude to this, I was a good player growing up and was fortunate enough to play back in the old ASL. And, but, you know, I was never good enough as much as I wanted to, I was never good enough to put on the national team Jersey. And, uh, and even when I got to the pros, I went from playing all the time in college to being a reserve in the pro league, you know? So that's what I always kind of alluded to is just, doesn't mean you're not a good player and you can't play. It just means you're not a fit here. And some of them kind of got it. Some of them, you know, didn't. It was a unique spring because I've never done that with so many players before in all my years. You know, so it was kind of a spring of we were really coaching and training a team that wasn't going to be back in the fall. Uh, I think we only kept seven out of, I don't know, 25 that we had in the roster. Oh, something, wow. something like that. So, uh, so it was a little bit of a unique spring, and uh, but we tried to handle it that way. I have, I have another follow-up question to that that, that entire situation that, that you had to go through. How, how much of that dialogue happens between coaching staff and player, and how much of that happens between coaching staff and parent? And I'm, I'm just, I, I guess I'm curious how, how involved the parents are at yeah. that level, no. at ACC level. Yeah, no good question. But really, probably very little of it with parent, uh, if any at all. Um, I think we had a couple of parent conversations um, 
after we had the initial conversations with the players um one of the one of the parents uh wanted um us to reconsider uh their daughter was a, a walk-on and you know just felt like you know we don't care if she's playing if not you know just one of those things like it's not about her playing or anything else it's just you know she loves it there and she wants to be there um so you know that parent conversation we had one of the players that was a parent conversation mainly because it involved a medical red shirt um where she just physically the doctors were not going to allow her to play anymore and so that one really involved a lot of conversations with the parents because um you know they had a hard time coping with it you know just to be quite honest so um but other than that all the conversations really were with us and the players um no real interactions with with the parents at that point you know and it's it's uh, not that we wouldn't wouldn't have had those conversations if the parents, you know, wanted to call. But I think it's one of those things that we've always kind of preached since we got there is that, you know, you're adults now. You want to be treated like adults. And these conversations are conversations you need to learn how to have. And, um, you know, mom and dad's not playing here. So, um, you know, you, you have to understand that the accountability falls on you. And I think that's one issue. Um, John, that I'm finding over the years is that even from 10 years ago, this whole uh, social media has so many great things just like this. You know, I, I, we wouldn't have got to connect on something like this without Twitter and, yeah. and social media. And so it's got so many positives, but it, it also has created kind of a, a, a generation of young players that don't know how to have conversations. They don't know how to sit down and look you in the eye and they don't know how to, you know, to without texting it to you, they, they really don't know how to have these conversations. So from day one, we've tried really hard to, you know, to, to have a real open relationship with them in terms of, you know, exactly where you stand. This is exactly what you've got to do to get more time. You're getting a lot of time. Here's exactly what you got to do to get better. You know, just a lot of time um, individually with each of the players. Uh, because they just don't have those communication skills, but um, but really very very little that we'll we'll have with the parents. Yeah, the communication skills is is interesting, and I I see it now because I'm coaching, and I and I've mostly coached at, at the youth soccer level. But um, as as you get like this next generation of players who, let's see, it's 2019. My guys were born in 2005 or no 2006, so they've yeah. throughout their entire life the iPhone has existed and, <laughs> and and so it's like they've grown up always having you know that that communication tool whether it's um you know just with their parents their parents give them the phone to entertain them or they communicate with their friends and family on, yeah. on their phones but um you you see it I think in their facial expressions when you're having conversations with kids these days too it's like they don't know they don't even know how to react to what you say to them because it's it's happening in real time. And so you, you yeah. know, they don't know whether to smile, whether to frown, whether to cry, whether to be, you know, um, you know, elated. I, I don't know. It's like it, they, they don't know how to figure out their emotions sometimes in, in, in real life. And I know that's a general kind of sweeping statement, but I think I, I do, I do believe that holds water though. So, no, I think there's a lot of truth to that. And, and, and you're right about the iPhone because that's, that's actually, that's all they've known. That is their portal. You know, for, for me, the iPhone is just, 
I need to call somebody, you know, <laughs> uh, that's my, that, that's my purpose in the iPhone. Not that I don't do other things on it, but you know, I wasn't brought up in a generation with, with mobile phones. So my phone to me is more of a communication thing. Whereas their, their, their mobile phone is, is everything. It's the portal for how I order dinner, you know, um, you know, for how I order my transportation and, you know, I mean, it's everything. So, um, it, it, you're right. It's, there's a, been a lot lost in that. And, um, you know, I think the other thing of this is I'm real big on player accountability and, and, um, I think they're also a generation of young kids that have had a generation of parents that have taken care of things for them, you know, and, uh, they have a bad grade in school and mom and dad goes to see the teacher, you know, or there's, uh, you know, things with your team as a youth coach, if it's not going well, well, mom and dad wants to come and approach you about it. And, and my dad, you know, in club soccer and, uh, you know, I, I just recently lost him and, and I've, I always appreciated this about him was, um, man, anytime I complained or anything about my club team playing, it's like, Hey, quit complaining to me. Go, you got a coach. That's what he's there for. Go talk to him. You know, it's never way well, I'll go take care of it. You know, I'll, I'll go talk to the coach for you. And, and so that's why I give you guys a ton of credit in the club world, because uh, I don't know how you do it sometimes with, <laughs> with, the, with the parent involvement. I know exactly how it is. Um, uh, it's just, you know, it's, it's, it's really out of control, but I, I think players have to learn to be accountable for their own actions and they have to learn how to be accountable for their, their progress and their development and and um you know they they can't do that hiding behind other other things and other people and so that's that's one of the reasons that you know we don't have these conversations with the parents it is we're dealing with you you're the player you're the one i've got to have a relationship with um you know not with your mom and dad um you know although they're always welcome and and uh all of that but uh and glad they support you but uh, you're my player, and and you're the one that we we've got to learn to communicate. So, uh, fortunately, I've got an AD that backs that up. And um, as difficult as it was, we kind of got through it, and and now we're really excited about the new group coming in. I like that you mentioned the AD and and how important the support is too, because even though college is is its own animal, it's 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 its own it's pretty much its own universe inside of uh, inside of the American soccer universe. But there's a lot of parallels that you can, that you can draw to the the club soccer world. And one of those is the support that club coaches typically do not have from club um, administrators, whether that's the DOC or whether that's the club president, a lot of times in, in youth soccer, I, I, and I've seen this many, many times, and I've had many people bring this up is that the, the, the president of the club or the, or the DOC, there, there's no line of communication. There's no, there's no, um, open communication between those, those people and the coaches themselves. And there's no communication amongst the other coaches that are in the club. And so when there's that problem with a parent at, at a club level, there is no, a lot of times there is no support. It's all up to the coach. It's all on the coach's shoulders. And so what you're describing is actually the perfect scenario. And a lot of times youth coaches don't know that that scenario is supposed to exist. And that's how it's supposed to be that the higher levels are supposed to have your back and step in when you need them. So that what, what you're describing is like, it, to me, it sounds amazing. Um, but I know that I, I know that a lot of coaches that are going to be listening to this don't have that experience. So um, yeah, and unfortunately, you know, I spent a lot of years in club soccer many years ago and, and actually was a director of coaching at one time as well. And 
And and I'm right there with you. I think the, the club system is broken in a lot of regards with that. And I think it's, you know, there's probably a lot of reasons, but the money that's involved is probably the biggest reason. And, you know, you, the success, the quote, perceived success that each team needs to have uh, or players want to get up and leave and, you know, go to the team that's winning. And, and so club coaches are put under a lot of, of pressures and, and then having to deal with the parent. You're right. Your, your DOC oftentimes has their own teams to coach as well and don't have time to deal with it. And, you know, you would think in a chain of command, your DOC should be the one there with you um, to, to support you however is needed when you have those kind of parental concerns or, you know, any other problems with your team. Um, and I think we, we're missing that a little bit with our clubs around the country. There's a few that do a really good job of it. Uh, but there's a whole lot that don't. And, and the same thing with boards. I mean, you're, most clubs are board operated and run. And, and unfortunately, those boards oftentimes are made up of parents who may or may not be happy, you know, depending on, <laughs> on how, how things are going with their child. So it's, um, it's, a, tough, it's a tough gig. That's, I'll go back to it again. I, I give you guys a lot of credit because it's not, it's not structured in a way, you know, often – I often say things that probably many of us in the sport do. You know, if you if you ever won the lottery, I'd love just setting up a club the right way, and you know, get get the facilities, not have a board, just run it, get the right coaches in, and 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 uh, and, and really do things properly. And and but it's you know, it, every club in the country seems like they they have these same type issues to some regard. And and like I said, I I think there are a few that have some DOCs that really do a good job of it, but those are few and far between. Hey, sit tight. We are going to hear a quick message from our sponsor, Bounce Athletics. As a part-time DOC, I had a budget and, you know, we needed training gear every year and it just was getting more and more difficult to find decent, high-quality, affordable training balls. That's Zach. He's the co-founder of Bounce Athletics. And as a coach... He was having a hard time finding quality soccer balls at an affordable price. So he started searching for ways to solve that problem for himself and for others. We've been able to experiment with a lot of different textured materials and construction methods. And, and I think we've really got it dialed in to, to where now, you know, with, with our training balls, we're providing super high level training balls that have all the modern technology in them for a fraction of the price of global brands. Zach and Bounce Athletics are offering 343 members and listeners 10% off orders of those custom premium soccer balls that he was just talking about. Email info at bounceathletics.com to start the order process and be sure to mention 343 to receive your 10% discount. All right, let's get back to the show. Tell me, tell me a little bit about your about your past, and, and specifically maybe um, about how you found soccer and, and how you were as a player. You mentioned that that you felt you were a good player, but never made it to the national team level. You mentioned that your that your father kind of was there for you and, and, and pushed you, and, and you made a positive reference that he he kind of pushed you in the right direction and and encouraged you to to take kind of ownership of of your of different situations um but but i'm curious how you how you kind of got to this place that you're at now which is university of pittsburgh and and you've had a number of stops along the way but where where did it all start well i tell you the interesting thing i'm originally from irving texas um and 
interesting enough, I, I didn't start playing until I was 12. Um, and that was the first year. It was 1968. It was the first year that soccer came to my city. And back in those days, uh, John, a lot of our your listeners probably will, won't even have remembered these days. I'm showing my <laughs> age here. But back then, you played like within your city. You just played in the local leagues. And then as you got a little bit older and the soccer in the Dallas Metroplex got bigger, each, you know, different cities started developing their own playing associations. And once it got bigger, where kind of this, quote, club soccer leagues developed, um, back in those days, you played for your city, you know, a team in your city. So, for example, my team in, in Irving, um you know, for most of my youth, I played in the Irving Soccer Association. We we had our own league, and you just played within your own league in your city. When I got into high school is when the clubs kind of started, and we started playing in leagues that involved teams from different cities around the Metroplex, you know, so they'd have one big league, which was kind of this elite league for all the top teams in the different cities. But you but still back then, you didn't, you didn't jump and go play for another club you played for the club that was the club in the city that you grew up in so i was really lucky because um honestly it was by accident i had been growing up playing baseball and to be honest i, I was just bored stiff i mean I'm, I'm i'm a hyper person and always on the go and baseball i just you know i just stood around too much but <laughs> i was playing baseball and i happened to be at a parks and rec center uh, near my house and just um, hanging out at the, the rec center. And this sh Swedish gentleman uh, named Eric Nordstrom uh, had moved to our city and was trying to start a soccer league. And he just caught me when I was going down the hall and asked me if I wanted to play. And I said, soccer? Yeah, what is it? You know, I didn't really even know. Because back then there was nothing on television uh, that I knew of. You know, if you just said the World Cup, I'd have had no idea what you were talking about back then. And um, so I signed up to play and just fell in love with it, you know, um, straight away. And so I stopped everything else and at 12 years, just started playing soccer. And, and I got really lucky because um, I had a high school coach that was also my club coach. And his name was Simon Sanchez. And he had played in the Mexican League, uh, kind of a, a semi-pro, lower pro, pro level, just a good man. I think outside of my dad probably had the biggest influence on my life um but a, a great just a volunteer coach um you know back in the day all the coaches were volunteer but he knew the game and he had a passion for it so i always credit him for really teaching me about the technical side of the game and improving my skills and 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 kind of gave me the passion and it was one of those things honestly on the weekends in high school instead of going out doing things i shouldn't have been doing my buddies I'm over at his house on Friday night and Saturday night, and we're just talking soccer. I could sit there and talk shop with him for hours, you know, and tell him the stories of his playing days and, you know, just encouraging me. And, you know, so um, that kind of really gave me the passion for it. And then I went off and played uh, my college at, at a small school in Texas, Midwestern State University. And, um, um, you know, had a good career there. I mean, considering we had a, we had a good team, and I'll I tell you something that people won't realize either is back in those back when I was playing in the late seventies, the national rankings included 
every division. So like your top 25, you might have some D1 schools, but you may have NAI schools. You may have Division II schools. Um, they were all inclusive in your, your top 25. So uh, we were an NAI school. And uh, back in the day, Quincy College was really a good NAI school and Davis and Elkins. Uh, Simon Frazier was a good NAI, NAI school. Uh, and then the big powers were St. Louis University at the time. Uh, in Texas, SMU in North Texas had some really good men's teams um, back in the day. And, and um, so, you know, we, it was um, had a good time playing. I, I ended up getting drafted in the ASL um, by the Los Angeles Skyhawks. So I went out and played um, with L.A. And then uh, probably midway through the season was traded to a team in Indianapolis and called the Daredevils. And, and I went and finished out there with the Daredevils. And then the league folded um, pretty much, uh, you know, went, went under. And um, so uh, I knew I wanted to do something with the sport. And so luckily my degree was in education. And uh, because back then there was no club soccer where you could make a living. Uh, coaches weren't being paid. So the only way you could really make a living was to teach and coach in high school. So that's what I did. And ironically, I went back to Irving, went back to the same high school I played at and ended up becoming a, a, a history teacher and, uh, and coached, uh, and coached soccer. Um, and so I did that about five years and I always had a plan. I, I felt like I didn't want to be a high school coach more than five years. Cause I didn't want to be labeled. I always wanted to coach in college. So I didn't want to be labeled as a high school coach. So sure enough, after the five years, I, uh, luckily found a job at SMU as a part-time assistant. And uh, actually was uh, a part-time assistant for Shellis Heinemann, um, and, uh, who had a lot of successful years at SMU. And um, so he kind of got me a little bit of my start in the, uh, in the college game. And then, you know, I went on from there to University of Tulsa and spent six or eight good years there. Back then, too, I also coached men and women at the University of Tulsa. A lot of coaches around the country were coaching both teams. Um, I think I made $20,000 and I thought I was rich, uh, <laughs> you know, coaching the men and the women. Um, but I was flying all over the country. It was, uh, it was a tough gig to do, but, um, you know, and then I left, uh, Baylor. I mean, I left, left Tulsa and went to Baylor, uh, university and, um, you know, spent three years building that program. Uh, we did very, very well in those first three years, uh, had them nationally ranked by the second year. And, um, and then, uh, this interesting enough, I always, my dream job was the university of Texas. I just grew up being a, a Longhorn fan and, um, the Texas job came open after the third year and it came down to myself and Chris Petroselli for the job. And Chris was at Notre Dame and had just won in 95 a national championship and i thought you know there's no way chris is going to leave notre dame to come to texas and i thought surely i was getting the the texas job and ironically chris got it and about two days later notre dame called me and uh, (laughs) so we kind of just flipped and i i took the notre dame job and uh you know spent a good number of years there before i left and took on the houston dash for four years and then it's kind of led me back to getting back in the college game and, and here at Pittsburgh. So it's been an interesting, um, you know, an in- in- interesting career to say the least. That's cool, man. Um, I want to go, I actually want to go all the way back to the beginning. Um, okay. 
a question I wrote down as you were talking when you when you started to talk about your first introduction to soccer, you mentioned you were 12 years old. This guy, you know, sees you walking down the hall and, and kind of taps you on the shoulder. Hey, you want to play soccer? Um, number one, it reminded me of a movie that I watched when I was growing up as a kid. It reminded me of uh, uh, The Big Green. Did you ever see that movie? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so when you're yeah, talking about, when yeah. you're talking about Irving, Texas, is like th- that's what I'm envisioning. Is like you know these kids have never played soccer before. But the yeah. question the question I wrote down is is what did those what what did that league look like at the time? Who who was playing soccer in Irving, Texas? What was the culture like of, uh, yeah. of soccer? Well, there there really wasn't. You know, there wasn't a, a soccer culture. This this guy and and uh, and I love him to death because he's kind of known now in Irving. He's passed away years ago, but has long been known as the you know the father of soccer in Irving. And he was the only one that really knew. And I I remember the first year I went um, because it was a new league. Every player from 12 years old to 17, we played in the same league. So I was 12, but I had some 15, 16, 17-year-olds on my team. So we were all just, you know, there wasn't enough 12-year-olds to play U12 and and 14 to play U14. It was just enough to have seven or eight teams total. And so you played up and you played with older players. And to be honest with you, I think in the the long run, that was good. But I can remember playing the old WM. You know, we played two fullbacks and three midfielders and five forwards. And I was one of the two backs. And I remember, you know, all I knew to do is when the ball came, just clear it as far as I could, you know, and, that was, and, and you think you're doing something really well. And, and, uh, and then as the game goes, you pick up a little bit, but it was really, um, you know, there were no, um, there really wasn't a culture. Uh, I think a lot of the parents didn't know what the sport really was. So they just was more of a generation of kind of encouraging and, and, um, and then we had a couple of international, I can remember a, a German player uh, a couple of years into the league that came in and and uh you know moved to the city and then he was like phenomenal you know so then you started to see oh that's what it's supposed to look like you know and and uh with the skill sets and things and it it evolved pretty quickly though i'll have to admit it you know from year one to probably the third year the league really really took off and and grew and and in numbers and within a couple of years we were able to get into age appropriate teams and um you know it it probably i i don't have any old um, 16 millimeter film of it. Unfortunately, <laughs> I wish I wish I did. I'm, I'm assuming it probably wasn't very pretty at all. But uh, you know, we played even on the fields. There were no soccer goals, so we played in the, with the football. The football crossbar was the goal. You know, and um, at the parks we had to play at it in the in the beginning. And um, but I tell you, once it kind of grew after you know four or five years. When I got to maybe 16 years old is when we started going out and playing outside of our city. And it, that was a time that the old Dallas tornado really took off in the NASL. So a lot of those guys, I give a lot of credit to um, because those guys uh, like Jan Book and Chris Toning, Kenny Cooper, um, Neil Cohen, a lot of those guys, uh, Steve Petcher, who's still, you know, involved in youth soccer in St. Louis, those guys all played and they did a lot of work out in the local community. You know, just coming, Ron Newman um, and Ron's son Guy was my age or is my age. And so they lived in Richardson. So his son, uh, who was the Dallas Tornado coach, Guy Newman, uh, Ron Newman, 
his son, um, you know, played in, in the league in Richardson. So, like, my team would go play uh, his team, which was the Rangers. Uh, we'd go to South Dallas, which was where a lot of the Hispanic players played. And those kids were really, really good because they were brought up playing with their parents who were pros, you know, or had 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 been brought brought up in the sport. And uh, then you go to another part of South Oak Cliff, and it was mostly African-American minorities and teams made up. So we really culturally got a lot of different kinds of teams um, playing when we got to go out through the cities. And I think the old tornado really, things really started to take off with soccer in the Metroplex when they really started um kicking it in in town and because they did so much networking out in the communities and and i think they're the ones that really took took the game to the next level you know for all of the surrounding metroplex areas so it was a fun time you know a lot of those guys i still keep up with that i played in in those days and to see where they've come from now and what they're doing a lot of them are still involved in the game uh some aren't um one of the guys that was uh, a mentor with the, the, the old tornadoes a couple of years ago just reached out to me out of the blue. He's back in Sweden and um, wanted to know if I'd come over and do some sessions for his girls team. And he had kept up with my career and which I hadn't heard from him in, you know, 30 years. And we went over and recruited a couple of kids from Sweden while we were there and, um, you know, got to have a little vacation time and, and, and catch up with him. And, you know, so all of those things really took off. That was kind of in the heyday. The old Dallas Cup got started way back in in those days, too. Ron Griffith started that tournament, which is, you know, one of the most prestigious European-American tournaments in the, in, in the country right now. Um, you know, they just complete that. They play that every Easter. But that's where a lot of then the foreign teams would come in, you know. So we got to see the Nigerians play and, you know, the Italian teams and, Tawichi from Bolivia and those guys were, you know, so so we really got a good soccer education once things really, you know, cranked up after the first few years. I love talking to guys like you, Randy, because you you really showcase American soccer's very rich history. A lot of times people forget or or they are misinformed that American soccer does have a very rich history, whether you want to say it started in the sixties or the seventies or the thirties, whenever, but you know, soccer, soccer has a very, very um, interesting story that starts well before 1994 and 1996. And so I, I love hearing these things about like how Dallas cup actually started and how um, ironically a, a tornado brought Texas together. <laughs> yeah. but, uh, but it's, yeah. it's really cool. I, I love hearing these types of stories. I think people um, would really benefit listening, listening more to, to uh, what, what guys like you have to say about the, the history of American soccer. It's very interesting. Yeah, and, and I think there's so many places that actually do have a pretty deep, uh, deep history with it. You know, I mean, you can go into the St. Louis area, and there's a, a lot of history in that area as well. But, you know, a lot of people don't realize that. I think you're right. A lot of people think it kind of took off after the 94 World Cup. And it's it's really been around a lot longer than that. And, you know, I, I had – I think one of the things that was more beneficial to me than anything is – when I grew up as a youth player, you know, we weren't, and I don't know how to say it, but we weren't sanctioned as much by the leagues as you guys are now. And it wasn't as, as controlled. So even though there were rules in the leagues we played in, but I played, for example, I played um, for my high school team 
during high school season, but I played for my club team uh, all year long. And then my coach would put me out as a 15, 16 year old. We'd play either a high school game if we were in season or we'd play our club games on a Saturday and on Sunday. He's got me over playing in this, we used to call it the Bandit League, but it was a, uh, a Mexican league in South Dallas. It's, it was an adult league and it was loaded with, you know, old ex pros from Mexico or uh, Colombia or Panama or, you know, and it was, it, it couldn't even speak English. But my, this when I go back to say how fortunate I was to have Simon Sanchez as my coach. He saw something in me going, you know, this, this guy's, this kid's got a future. And so he would take me and, you know, I'd go to, to play in, as a 15-year-old, I'm playing with these, you know, 30 and 40-year-old guys, and they're, you know, they're knocking me around and everything else. But, but, but you learn because as a young player, when they saw that you could play, you know, they took care of you. Even though most of the teams I played on, the players didn't even speak English, and I didn't speak Spanish, but there was that mutual, you know, understanding, and they would, they'd take care of you. And I. I look at it now and go, God, as a 15, 16-year-old kid, when I first started driving, I mean, I'm going out to South Dallas on my own, and, and I'm at a soccer park on a Sunday afternoon, and, you know, fights could break out in these adult leagues, or any number of things could happen. It was a part of town that you really weren't supposed to be going to, but yet it never, I never thought twice about it, because it was, I knew that the soccer community there, you know, they, your team had your back, that kind of thing, but learning to play um, as a, at a young age with older players, I think really helped my development and my love and passion for the game because I wasn't just locked into age pure and no, heaven knows, let's don't move a kid up or, you know, and, and uh, let's don't challenge them or whatever. And I know you guys are restricted with a lot of those rules now, but I think that's one of the best things I ever did as young players playing up, you know, and um, uh, I think we're missing the boat in some of those cases right now, but um, you know, that's, that was, that was there for a long, long time before the 94 world cup. So you're right. It's, um, a lot of deep roots with the, with the, the, the soccer in this country. Yeah. It's an, it's an interesting part of your story. You mentioned it twice actually. So as you were a 12, 13, 14 year old, you mentioned that that league didn't have age appropriate brackets at the time. So you were playing against like the mixed age group and then, yeah. and then a few years later, you know, the, the, the coach has thrown you in with the with the men's league. So that, that's a, a big part of, yeah, what sounds like your, your development. So I'm curious, actually, Randy, if you've, um, if you've adopted that as a coach, have you, have you adopted the confidence of throwing younger players in the mix with, with older players? Like what's your re- realistically, like what's your track record of playing freshmen and, and sophomores, um, at well, the collegiate level? No, I, we, we play them right away. And I, I used to always say this at, at Notre Dame when we were there, even with our teams that, you know, we were there 14 years, and and um, I think we played in eight Final Fours and five national championship games. So every year we had a really, really good team. Um, but I was never afraid to play freshmen. And I know, for example, our our men's coach at the time felt completely different. You know, it was kind of, and he was a very good coach too. So uh, nothing about him at all. But his philosophy was he was afraid freshmen uh, didn't have the experience and. You know, they had to really earn their way. And for me, I was always different. I, I Right away, we threw freshmen in, and I wanted them to play. And I still do this here at, at Pitt, and will continue to do it. Uh, even in the pros, I did it with the, the draft picks that we had. But 
put them in early to play um, because I always want them to know early on what it feels like. You know, if you if you just my my thought has always been if you wait and you play them in your let's take our college season for example, if we're playing them in the games when we get up three or four nothing where we know it's safe and that's when we're giving them playing time, then we're truly they're getting playing time and getting some experience, but we're truly not getting them the kind of experience they're going to need come you know tournament time or NCAA tournament time. So I was always a big believer in playing them early. So at Notre Dame, you know, we'd always go up to Stanford and Santa Clara, uh, or we go to Carolina and Duke, and, you know, those were kind of our non-conference type competition. And I wanted our freshmen to play in those games because I wanted to know – I wanted them to understand what it felt like in a big game. And, you know, I wanted them to know if we are up one and they that they would understand how to how to cope with that. I wanted them to understand if we were down one, they, they, they needed to learn how to cope with that. And if all we were doing is putting them up when you're up a few goals, there's no real growth. So my fear was always if I didn't play young players young too and have a belief in them, when we got to the tournament time and the NCAA tournament, if I haven't played them a lot in big games, then if I had key injuries late in the season and I needed one of those freshmen to step in, well, the first time they're stepping in is at an NCAA tournament game. And that's not the right time for them to – you know, to get their feet wet. So I've always, always played young players and I have no, no qualms, you know, taking on a youngster. Um, I'm not one too, John, that worries about, you know, so many coaches out there are, it's all about size and they, they're not big enough or they're not strong enough or they're not fast enough or, you know, I, I just think soccer players either can play or you can't play. Now, you know, would I rather have the soccer player that can play but is big, strong, and fast? Absolutely. But, you know, the criteria for me has ne- never been geared to the the, the, the big, strong, you know, uh, fast player uh, over technical abilities. You know, I'll take a I'll take a team of Iniestas and and uh, Xavi Alonso's and you, you know uh, Messi's and those type. You can't tell me the small players can't play. So we've never worried about the size piece of it either. You know, we we just we look for the players and and if they've got the ability, then when they're young, they're gonna get gonna get thrown in the fire. I think that's what you do. That's cool, man. That's uh, that's inspiring to hear. And I know a lot of people right now are. Especially because we're living in an era or living through an era where, you know, Messi is the most dominant player in the world and he's this, you know, he's a midget basically. Yeah. And, um, and, and you know, people are, are really gravitating towards that and, and using that as fuel to, to play some of the younger players. But even more so in, in American soccer, you know, a cool story is that the, the most recent MLS draft, the number one player was Frankie Amaya. And that guy is a very, he's a, he's a tiny player and he's, he's, his story is incredible. I've talked about him multiple times here on the podcast, but, um, you know, started out in unaffiliated leagues in Los Angeles playing on Sundays like that, like that's his whole story. He's the smallest player on the field. And then all of a sudden out of nowhere, he's, you know, with the U S youth national team and they're getting drafted number one, um, playing, uh, playing for I think Cincinnati, FC Cincinnati now but it's yeah. just like in the mid 90s you know once soccer had kind of gone through its boom here in the United States I guess and then you know from the mid 90s to probably the mid 2000s a guy like Frankie had no chance like that 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 aspect of soccer disappeared and now it looks like it's having another resurgence here in the United States thanks to probably 
Barcelona's success and and, yeah. and Spain's success with all these little guys running around just dominating the field and and so I think I think it's pretty cool. I think we're living through a a, a very interesting era of of soccer worldwide, but also specifically American soccer. Yeah, I, I agree. I think and 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 who knows what brought it on, but I think you made some good points. I think the, the Barcelonas of the world surely have shown us that. I think the coaches that we have right now with Guardiola and Klopp and the things that they're doing with their teams and the way they're playing now is, is great for the game. And, and uh, you know, it's, it's, it's always, it's interesting. There's been a lot of innovators and, and even with Guardiola, if you go back to his early years and, and his ties to Christ and uh, Johan Cruyff's ties with Renus Mickles and, you know, a lot of this, these did it seems like every generation's kind of had some outside the box type coaches and people that you know have have put their imprint on the on the game a little bit but i think here in the u.s you're absolutely right i think we went through a generation of players especially in the pros and at the national team levers level where coaches are just going it's about the size you know we got to be faster we got to be more athletic we got to be this or we got to be that i think that's been the problem a little bit uh, with our U.S. women's national team in recent years. You know, we, for years, that's we made our living on being more athletic uh, than the other women's teams around the world. And, you know, quite frankly, the uh, the rest of the world's caught up to us. And people ask me, you know, if they're catching up. And I, I think, John, they've not only caught us, but I think in some regards passed us with a lot of the countries and, and how they're playing and the kind of players they're producing. And um, so... You're right. I think we're in a good time because we got some players that can emulate that. And, you know, I, I just I hope those club coaches out there aren't bypassing and overlooking those young young players, whether they're male or female. They're you know, they're getting bypassed just because they're small. You know, I, I think if you can play and you can play, then that's our job to you know develop those kids. They'll, they'll grow eventually. So, um, you know, let's 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 keep um, let's keep our eyes open to everybody. Yeah, I got an interesting email this morning. Actually, I read it um, as I was making coffee um, right before I called you. And and a, a dad is is really worried about his son because his son's fourteen and still kind of hasn't hit that like full puberty yet. And so he's watching all of his teammates just skyrocket uh, uh, around him. You know, they're growing like trees, and here this guy is like he's not growing, but his technical yeah. ability is there. It's just now right. he's he's getting just left in the dust when it comes to his physical attributes, and the dad the the dad is is worried. He's like, hey, like you know, I'm I'm noticing that you know this is becoming a problem, and it's nothing that they can. It's nothing that he can improve. Like it's not it's not like you can go right. out and train your height or you can train your speed or or something like that. Right. So he's he's really worried that he's going to get left behind him, and I don't know what to say. Like it's it's a very yeah. tough problem. It's just hopefully he they they find a, a place that's going to recognize the technical the technical aspects of his game and, and give him a chance to, to develop. So, yeah. And I think, I think you brought up and we've touched on in, in this conversation, we, we touched on a little bit of one of the problems I think with, with club soccer is, you know, it, you go to any club in the country and just, I just got back from the DA and, you know, up in Colorado and even at quote, kind of the, the highest level of youth teams around the country, uh, you know, I think club coaches are under pressure to get results. And oftentimes, at young ages, that means just at tryouts, they're getting that bigger, stronger, faster kid that's matured sooner than everybody else, and and they're playing 
you know, direct soccer or whatever to, to fit those players' needs instead of really trying to develop all the players they have and, and play a good brand. And I think it's, it's that's the part that still disappoints me on the club side. You know, we go around the country all the time and, and see um, – and see the work um, that some of these clubs are doing. And you can tell that I'm just, I'm playing this way because I have athletes. I don't have soccer players, but I have to win games or kids leave my team or I get fired from my club. So that's the, that's the downside to the, to the club scene. I I do think we're producing more better players than we've ever done uh, across the board, but I still think there's a lot of work to be done to, to do it the right way. And, um, you know, I saw a little California team, the the La Miranda Club, and all of their teams played such an attractive brand. And you could tell uh, the coaches are doing a really good job in the way they organize the team and the way they play and the ideas that they have. And they're not big, strong, athletic kids. It's a lot of little Hispanic kids and, and uh, you know, they've got a little bit of flair to their game and, and they understand, you know, how to play. And then and yet they're not going to always get the results at those events because they're always going to run into those teams that are just have those couple of big, strong athletic kids that are going to power the way through. So, um, yeah. So the parents on that, in that, that regard just need to stay patient and keep working, you know, towards the technical side of things, because at the end that'll pay dividends, you know, and the other players will get left behind. Yeah. I like that. You kind of mentioned like, Hey parents, like, you know, listen up that that was that's that's really important at the, at the end of all my interviews actually i ask um i always ask what do people need to know and it's an interesting question um to me but it's it's always been really interesting to me to get everybody's take on it because i interview you you coach you know women's soccer you you grew up through a a, a different era than you know a, a young player that i interview um and so everybody's take on the on the question is is pretty remarkable. And so now that I've done like over two almost two hundred interviews, uh, yeah. ha- having you know two hundred different answers is pretty fun. Uh, <laughs> so so uh, what in your opinion do you think people really need to know at this moment in American soccer? I'm really curious to find out what you what you might have to say. Well, I I'm always such a big believer on just the technical side of the game. And I think as parents that are out there, if that's kind of who uh, we're addressing, then I think it's it's all about making sure that the young players are spending the kind of time they need with the ball, getting their skill set. You know, I, I often kind of make an allusion to basketball in the NBA. You know, we've got all of these superstar players in the NBA, um, you know, that can dunk like crazy and they're hyper-athletic and and yet when we get to the Olympics and the World Games and things, you see these European teams that are, are not as athletic, but they have all the fundamentals. They can pass, they can shoot, you know, they can dribble the ball and um, and they can make it difficult for us, you know, because there's so much emphasis put on just the, the basic fundamentals. And I think right now we don't do that enough with our young players, spend time on the technical development and so my best advice for the parents and the young players out there is you have to spend time with the ball and become proficient with it. I, I saw something just the other day, and I think it came out on Twitter just really because Ajax is still in the competition. So we're seeing a lot of stuff about, you know, the Dutch way and, and you know, what they're doing over in Ajax. And I actually had the chance a few years ago to go over there and uh, see a little bit of what they're doing. But 
um, you, you know, the I, I guess, um, you know, the point being is worry less about winning now, you know, uh, and get the skill set right. And the wins will come later when it's really more important. I mean, it's, you know, at the end of the day, if your under 14 youth team wins a state cup or, or goes to the ECNL or DA and wins a, a national championship, it's it, at the end of the day, that's not really going to be the end all for you. You know, there's, there's bigger things to accomplish. So, um, the winning and losing piece is not important. Get them in the right place with the right coach that can help teach and develop. We, all of us talk about player development. So that, that word's thrown out there way, way too much, I think, but they truly need to find a coach that's invested in developing them as a player instead of worrying about wins and losses. So I think that's the biggest thing. And and with that, there's a multitude of issues out there that we could probably spend hours on just trying to address the problems with youth soccer, problems with college soccer, you know, problems with the pro league. So, um, you know, we can, we can tackle some of those on another time. I think. <laughs> Absolutely. And that's always, it's always tough to, to do these interviews because we start talking about something and we could end up on that convert or in that, that thread for hours and hours and hours. But I don't know right. how, I, I don't know how, how long people would tune in on, on some of those, <laughs> some of those topics. Um, even though they, I, I love talking about soccer and, and, and that's why I love doing these interviews. And, and I feel like we talked about a, a lot of, uh, a lot of important stuff. I feel like there's a lot of variety in the conversation. I feel like people would, would be interested or are going to be interested in listening to this. But yeah, like you said, we could talk for probably five, six more hours and barely scratch the surface on some of this stuff. Yeah, no, I definitely, I could, I could talk shop all day long. So, uh, but I appreciate you having me on and listen, I, I keep it up with what you're doing. You're doing great stuff out there with your podcast. Thank you. I love following you on Twitter and seeing your <laughs> thoughts on things and, and, um, you know, keep, keep doing it. And, and, uh, you know, we need all of you guys to, to run with this and, and, um, take the sport further than it's it is right now and and so you know i appreciate you and what you're doing as well so i appreciate you having me on for this All right. Thank you for listening to another episode of the 343 podcast. And a big thank you to our sponsor, Bounce Athletics. I also want to leave you with one note from one of our members of the 343 coaching education program. His name is Thomas, and he's been a member for quite a while. And this is what he had to say. If you want to play insanely good with your team and start to understand the possession and positional game, this will give you a head start. I have tried the material on three ordinary teams, and after a year, they totally dominate the local teams. After two years, they are among the best in the region. The program 343 offers is not a complicated curriculum. It's actually simpler than you might think. But instead of more, you have to go deep in every detail. Thomas, thank you so much for that beautiful review, and I hope that everybody else finds that valuable. If you want more information about the 343 Coaching Education Program, the program that helps support and fund this podcast, you can visit 343coaching.com. All right, we'll catch you guys next time here on the podcast. Thank you so much for listening.